Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And the Kentucky Derby is coming up on May 7th. And so I thought this would be an okay time to confess that I have an inexplicable fascination with horse racing. It really surprised me about you. You told me this earlier in the day. Yeah, I don't even know what it is. It's not like, I mean, I've ridden horses before, but I wasn't really very much into it growing up. My, I had some friends who were, but even they weren't into racing. So... I don't really know what it is except for just the stories behind the jockeys, behind the horses and the trainers. It always seems whenever I tune into the Kentucky Derby every year, I hear all these stories of triumph over adversity and, I don't know, great comebacks. I imagine you have like a secret hat collection (laughs) that you bring out for the Kentucky Derby. Sarah, I only wish. (laughs) But before we go any further, for those who aren't familiar with the Derby, it's one of the classic American horse races and probably the most widely known in the U.S. It started in 1875, and it takes place annually the first Saturday in May at Churchill Downs in Louisville, Kentucky. The race distance is about 1.25 miles, one mile and a quarter, and it's often called the most exciting two minutes in sports. Yeah, and like I mentioned, we do associate things like big hats with the Kentucky Derby, mint juleps, high rollers, that kind of thing. It's a very elite event, and at least in the last 100 years or so, it's not that racially diverse. Certainly, that's not the way you think of it. But as we're going to learn, there was a time in the early days of the Derby when African-American jockeys dominated the U.S. horse racing scene. Yeah, and so here we're going to talk about the last black jockey to win the Kentucky Derby, a Kentucky native, actually, whose name was Jimmy Winkfield. And we'll take a look at his short but successful U.S. career and the events that brought that to a close and his remarkable experiences abroad. But first, um, we want to look a little bit at this history of African-Americans and horse racing. So we can trace African-Americans' participation in the sport to colonial times when the British brought their passion for horse racing to America. And according to an article in the Smithsonian by Lisa K. Winkler, even founding fathers George Washington and Thomas Jefferson frequented the track and former President Andrew Jackson had his own thoroughbreds and black jockeys. So very much a part of our culture. An illustrious start. Yeah. But the first black jockeys were slaves, and they got their skills and their affinity for horses, their connection to horses from doing sort of the menial work, cleaning the stables or grooming the owner's valuable animals. And Winkler points out that being on the racing circuit, once once black jockeys did start making it big, gave them a sort of false sense of freedom. It was one of the few ways that they could achieve real status. And a lot of them did. They they went all the way to the top in American horse racing. In the first Kentucky Derby in 1875, 13 out of 15 jockeys were black. And among the first 28 Derby winners, 15 of them were black. So they were they were dominating the horse racing scene. Yeah, exactly. And this was the environment that James Winkfield was born into on April 12th, 1882 in Kentucky. And he was the youngest son of George and Victoria Winkfield, who had a total of 17 kids. 
They were farmers, basically sharecroppers, and lived in a shotgun shack. So some of the kids actually had to spill out on the porch at night to sleep. Yeah, but little James definitely got interested in horses and racing early, probably in no small part because he was growing up in bluegrass country. And he heard, he probably saw the horses and also heard the stories of black jockeys making a name for themselves and and getting big. And lucky for him, he didn't get big. He stayed small, which is, of course, a requirement for professional jockeys, even though he had some siblings who were six feet tall. This is quite a discrepancy because by his teen years, he was only five feet tall and less than 100 pounds. So perfect build for a jockey. Yeah. And he started out just bugging other groomers in his area until they finally gave in and let him do some of their work for free. Sounds like a pretty good deal to me if you're one of those workers, but... Jimmy then got hired on as a groomer and an exercise boy, so he got his own gig. And this is how he got his experience and training and kind of got discovered, just riding horses as an exerciser. And there were some trainers who were looking out for opportunities all the time to turn riders into jockeys, looking for people who just seemed to have that natural talent. And that's how Jimmy got his first break in 1898 at age 16. Yeah, so he rode a race at Chicago's Hawthorne Race Course, but it didn't turn out to be the big break he was really looking for. In fact, it was quite a disaster. His horse broke next to last at the start, and then when he thought he saw an opening, he broke forth from the rail and cut across the path of three horses, and he took them all down in the process and got suspended for a year because of it. He came back, though, in 1899, strong as ever. Yeah, he started winning races in Chicago. For example, in 1900, he rode in his first Kentucky Derby, and that was out of four races, four Kentucky Derby races, I should say, that he would ride in total. In 1900, he placed third, The next two years, he placed first in the Kentucky Derby, first on a horse called His Eminence and then on Allenadale. And this made him only the second jockey to win two successive derbies. And I mean, there still really aren't that many jockeys who can claim that. It's a rare feat, indeed. And in 1903, he finished second because he made his move too soon. And it was a loss that always bugged him. I mean, he was hoping to go for three in a row there, it seems. Yeah, I've read that he actually talked about that loss until his death, you know, that he should have won it. Yeah, the the one that got away. (laughs) So by that time, the U.S. horse racing scene was already changing thanks to racism, segregation, Jim Crow laws. And the economy played a part, too. Recessions at the time really shrunk the number of racetracks and the attendance at the racetracks that were still open. Well, and there were also anti-gambling groups going around. So that was further shutting down the number of racetracks that were operating. Yeah, definitely. They went down from 314 tracks in 1890 to 25 by 1908, so really big dive. And white jockeys also didn't like competing with black jockeys for the best mount. So at times there was outright violence. I mean, during races on the track, black jockeys would sometimes be pushed towards the rail. Um, There was even a riot in Chicago between the white and the black jockeys. Yeah, so times were definitely changing. And you can really tell, even though Wingfield won more than 160 races in 1901, Goodwin's annual official guide to the turf omitted his name. So... He, he wasn't even a player even anymore, even though he was still winning. Yeah, and perhaps more seriously, or definitely more seriously, I should say, he received death threats from the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, so it was getting really hard for a black jockey to work in the United States anymore. And 
All those reasons were contributing for sure, but he really sort of put the final nail in his own coffin for his U.S. career because in 1903, he was scheduled to ride for one owner in the Futurity Stakes in New York City. And then he accepted a $3,000 offer to switch horses and ride on the favorite. And this was a Big faux pas. I mean, as you can imagine, switching horses at the last minute, and it really hurt his reputation. Yeah, so after the horse switch incident, Winkfield's number of rides dropped by a third. So he ended up moving to Russia in 1904, where he accepted a position with an American-owned stable. And there, his career really took off again. His first year there, he won the Tsarist Triple Crown, which is the Moscow, the St. Petersburg, and the Warsaw Derbies. And he was also the 1904 Russian national riding champion. Yeah, and over the years, he just kind of kept on winning the Moscow Derby four more times on one horse alone, and then several other times on different mounts. He rode on and off for different owners, a Polish prince, a German baron. So he wasn't just riding in Russia. He was riding in Austria and Germany and France, too, and making a lot of money doing it. Yeah, his salary at one point was 17,000 rubles, so it would have been equal to about $8,500 at the time per year, plus 10% of every purse that he won. So he was pretty well off, to say the least. He was living in this fancy schmancy hotel, the National Hotel in Moscow, and having caviar for breakfast. As we know, though, by 1917 or so, there was trouble brewing in Russia, and the Bolsheviks and the communists were getting organized, and the racing community was really at risk because it was something that rich people did. It was a symbol of the aristocracy. And so Wingfield, to protect himself, had to walk around in tattered clothing to avoid getting arrested by Bolsheviks. I I still think that's quite a I don't know. It's it's hard to imagine this five foot tall guy walking around. Yeah, what did they think of him? Like he would still stick out, I I think. Definitely. He was working in Odessa for Prince Lumomiski of Poland in 1919 when the Russian Revolution finally caught up to him. When they started hearing the sound of cannons, he and the rest of the racing community, which included horsemen and their families and about 250, 260 horses, something in there, they all took off and escaped Poland. It was a really hazardous journey, 1,100 miles to Warsaw. They had to cross the Transylvanian Alps, and they had to actually, unfortunately, eat some of the horses along the way because they got desperate for food. But they did make it eventually. Yeah, and once he was in Poland, Wingfield again resumed his riding career and started to recoup his fortune, most of which he lost when he left Russia. Even though he was getting older, he did become a successful rider again. He continued as a jockey through the 1920s. He won several stakes races. And altogether, he ended up winning 2,600 races in his entire riding career. That was one amazing thing I thought about this story. I kept expecting some sort of sad end, but he keeps bouncing back time after time. He does. In 1922, even when he was, as he was building up his racing again and still riding, he built a stable and a home near Paris in Maison Lafitte. He had a little family there with him, too, by then, a son and a daughter with his third wife, who was an exiled Russian aristocrat named Lydia Demikowitz. 
So when he finally retired from writing in 1930, around the age of 48, he decided to devote his life entirely to training horses at his stable in France. So he stayed put there, settled there instead of traveling around racing all the time. And he trained his own horses and horses for other owners, too. And he ended up doing really well by it. But unfortunately, he loses his fortune once again when the Germans invade France in 1941 and the Red Cross evacuates his family to the U.S., his yeah, home. So he's back home again, and black jockeys had pretty much disappeared from the racing scene by the early 20s, and Wingfield was looking for work and signed up with the Works Progress Administration working on a road crew, and later had to work as a groom and an assistant trainer for a living. So, I mean, a groom, that's back to where he where he started as a kid. Finally, though, he got to return to France in 1953 and start up his operation, his racing and training stable again. And he died in France March 23rd, 1974 at age 91. Again, just bouncing back. It's so impressive that he had he had it in him to, yeah. to keep going and try again. Yeah, it was a phenomenal life and a phenomenal career, really, and very impressive. But it took Winkfield a long time to get recognition that he deserved in his home country in the U.S. There's a story that's often told about he and his daughter attending the 1961 Kentucky Derby. Actually, it's really sad. They were invited to a Sports Illustrated event, a dinner at the Brown Hotel in Louisville, but they almost got turned away at the door by the doorman, and they had to have him go check several times and insist that they were guests and they were supposed to be there. And they finally got in, but then even when they did get there, they were essentially ignored by the people at the dinner. The dinner kind of, the people at the dinner kind of came up to them and said hi and shook hands, and then they didn't talk to anyone the rest of the time. Um, His daughter said in a 2002 NPR Weekend Edition interview that the only person who talked to us was a previous jockey who had won the Derby, and that was Roscoe Goose. He was the only one who was friendly enough to talk to us. Nobody else talked to us the whole time. That's so sad and tragic and disappointing, I guess. Dis- very, I would, that's the perfect way to describe it. Disappointing. I, I think you mentioned though, and I, I, I thought this was a, a neat counterpoint to it, even though he's so disrespected at this event, you said he still really enjoyed the race. Because that's his element. He liked it. He yeah. liked being there again. Yeah. From what I've read, he really enjoyed being at the race and kind of didn't care that people had treated him that way or really didn't seem to care, I guess, because he had been through so much in his life Crossing anyway. the Transylvanian Alps probably puts things in perspective. <laughs> yeah, that would uh, definitely change your perspective on the whole thing. I think that he was more embarrassed and worried about his daughter in that situation necessarily than himself. But regardless, things have changed a lot over the past decade. Winkfield finally got inducted into the National Racing Hall of Fame in 2004. And in 2005, the House of Representatives passed a bill honoring him. And in 2000, Marlon St. Julian became the first African-American to ride in the Derby since 1921. There have been a few since then. So maybe things are starting to change, starting to get back to how they were at the end of the 1800s. Yeah, it's interesting to think of going backwards as progress, but I guess in a weird way, that's kind of what it would be. Maybe. But I know that I'll definitely be watching May 7th to check out the Kentucky Derby and um, all the new stories that they have this year and learn about the present day jockeys and what their deals are. Um, And if you want to learn more about Jimmy Winkfield, because of course we only touched on his career. We didn't really go into his personal life that much. And There's there's, some interesting stories. 
there are some interesting points there. It's a little tumultuous. Um, he's not necessarily always coming up roses and all those stories. So you might want to check it out. It's really fascinating. There are a couple of biographies. There's one, Black Maestro, The Epic Life of an American Legend by Joe Drape. And there's another one called Wink by Ed Hodling. But for now, we'll just move on to listener mail. So after our five real-life Amazon podcasts, we got a few comments from listeners saying that a European halberd is a little different from a Japanese halberd, sort of pointier and less Less axe-like, yes. But we also got a really interesting email from listener Jen in California. She wrote to say... Hello, ladies. I just finished listening to your real-life Amazon podcast, and I wanted to say thanks for the part on the female samurai Nakano. I practice a Japanese sword style called EI. I just won two first places in a competition that was almost exclusively male with male judges. There are only a handful of women that practice the traditional samurai sword styles, let alone a blonde. I get Kill Bill references a lot. And there are only a rare few stories of true samurai women warriors, so thanks for the podcast. Plus a fun fact, the halberd, called the naginata, was traditionally a woman's weapon, and its power comes from the core and hips, so it's easy to see why it was wielded so well by women. I've practiced with it a few times, and although I love the samurai sword, the naginata is really a fun weapon. Keep the warrior women stories coming, especially Japanese ones. So, yeah, I thought that was cool. Thanks, everybody, for the halberd explanations. I'm impressed that there are so many Japanese weapon experts out there listening. Definitely. You know, I have a Japanese weapon as well. I have a sword. Oh, my gosh. So you're learning all kinds of things about (laughs) me, Sarah. Are you a a samurai sword-fighting expert? I'm not. No, mine is a ninja katana, but... I don't actually know how to use it, which I don't know if that's better for my opponents or worse, but I guess hopefully I'll never have to find out. Yeah, well, because there are stories every now and then about when people really use their sword collections for, for good or for defense, so I guess you never know. Well, just in case. Just in I've case. got it next to my bed. You've got it next to your Kentucky Derby hat collection. <laughs> All right, before I get made fun of anymore, we better we better say goodbye for this podcast. If you have any suggestions for us or want to tell us about your own weapon-wielding skills, please write us at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com or look us up on Twitter at Missed in History or on Facebook. And if you want to check out what we've been blogging about lately, you can look us up on the homepage. We're at www.HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. iTunes.